0: And generally, 95% of the public, when you look at people who are really successful, you see the beginning, oh, I had this great idea. And then you see a couple of years down the road, wow, it really worked out. You know, look how much money, you know, Joe Smith is making. And what you don't realize is the you know, a uh, layer of shit that they had to climb through for years in order to make that a reality. I mean, it's much more difficult to launch a company from scratch and, and be able to scale it up than most people think. Welcome
1: back to the Taylor Blum Project, a show where I interview some of the world's most successful, high-achieving, interesting people about how they got to where they're at, the obstacles they had to overcome, and any good stories or advice that they have along the way. On this episode, I have entrepreneur and filmmaker and app developer, Matt Whitworth. And I use the word entrepreneur, which you'll find out in this interview. He really does not like that word, which he goes on to explain why. In this episode, me and Matt dive deep into what it takes to be successful and what connections have to do with that. He talks a lot about how he started with no contacts and he was broke in his 20s and how he got through that time and built up his Rolodex to what it is today, taking it piece by piece and hearing no's all the time. And I think it's a really good story for anybody that thinks or questions if they can do it just because they come from a small town or they don't know any experts in the field or they don't have any connections. And that's how matt started and he talks about how he built that whole thing up from scratch and it's a really inspiring and motivating story i've had so many different conversations with matt over coffee and a lot of it goes back to how passionate he is about connecting people To get to his level of success not only did he have to work his connections and hear a lot of no's which he talks about his story in depth in this interview and is so fascinating for anybody out there that wants to grind and really wants to achieve that level of success the things you have to do when you don't have connections or you're not an expert necessarily in your field matt has done documentaries um one is entitled the swamp which has had tens of millions of views on facebook he's developed an app called the update And he doesn't have a background in filmmaking and he is not a coder by any means. He talks about in this interview how he's connected with people so that they can help him get to where he wants to go. But then he'll also connect them with other people so that it's a two way street. And it's just a really fascinating take on just the connection between people. And I know I keep using that word, but it's so important and such a common theme in this entire interview. He will give you a ton of good tidbits on how he rose up to where he is and he doesn't pull any punches with his advice and what he thinks about the path on getting to success. You can find Matt all over the world wide web. On Twitter, he is at Matt Whitworth underscore. That is M-A-T-T W-H-I-T W-O-R-T-H underscore. And you can find his groundbreaking political documentary series, The Swamp, on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash The Swamp. And you can find The Swamp on Twitter at the Swamp Series. So without any further ado, let's get to my conversation with Matt Whitworth. Enjoy. and we are live. Matt Whitworth, thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. So I wanted to start this off. I had a friend that told me that I should ask you about your parking spot in high school, that there's a good story (laughs)
0: behind it. (laughs) Oh man, you're getting the dirt from me already. So um, I guess the the story sort of demonstrates I've always had a a willingness to buck authority, as they say. Um, When I was in high school, The class officers, there was two parking lots. Um, One was really close to the high school, one was on the other side of the football stadium. And uh, it was set up that the class officers could paint these six or seven spots um, right near school for themselves. So I ran for class president, I believe, or class treasurer. I came in third place out of three people. So I did not get one of my parking spaces. (laughs) Um, so what I decided to do is on a Sunday night, I went to the parking lot and I picked the next available blank space next to the six or seven painted spots for the class officers. Um, and I had paint in our school colors and I just painted them myself. Um, you know, people would put, um, you know, go rapids or their name or different things like that. Um, so I just decorated the spot up and, um, uh, that was a Sunday night. I went there Monday morning, late as usual, one of the last cars to get into the school parking lot. And, uh, sure enough that parking space was available. So it was uh, a good little trick to get around the system. Carving out your own niche already in high school. That's it. That's it. Exactly.
1: So then if we go from there, you know, I've talked to you and we've met a decent amount of times even before this interview. And you're always about trying new things. You know, you're not scared of risk. You've made documentaries. Now you have an app called the update that you just developed and released. How do you go from that high school kid to where you are now? What steps did you take to, you know, you're in high school, you're going for student government, and now you're doing documentaries about some of the biggest politicians, in government
0: well you really don't quit um, I don't get hung up on losers um, if something doesn't work out I just try to learn from it as quickly as possible but I move on um, just as fast and I don't take any uh, failure personally it's just business you know it's just experience um, and I've you know learned an awful lot with um things in the beginning of my career not working out. So I would say the majority of things that I've tried to do have not worked, have not been successful. Um, But I, you know, I built a Rolodex along the way and, um, you know, you just press ahead. Um, So now a lot of the things that um, slowed me down in the beginning just because of lack of experience or, you know, not having the wherewithal about, certain issues or how to handle certain issues, whether it's personnel or, um, getting a, a product launched. Um, you know, I, that's smooth sailing now. Um, so everything that I've done, even in the beginning when it was a lot of misses, um, you know, it led me to a point now where I have a you know a deep roll index of contacts. I know how to, um, take ideas and, and be able to execute on them. I know how to assemble a team. Um, And most importantly, I know, you know, um, how not to get taken advantage of, you know, um, that's one of the things I think when you're young and, you know, I do a lot of business with people who are, um, I respectfully call them, you know, these gray hair guys. And uh, a lot of those guys are important because, you know, when you're young, um, you don't have capital, you know, you don't have a lot of experience. You have a lot of energy and enthusiasm, um, which is important, but you know, that doesn't necessarily translate into being able to execute on your idea. And sometimes you have to go out and find the people that have a little bit more experience and whether you're going to put them on your board or you're going to bring them in, um, one of your executives, um, you know, you have to be able to do it, but you know, trying to become a good judge of character early on and then being tough, but fair. Um, is something that, um, um, you know, I had to learn the hard way a couple of times, but it's one of the most important lessons that I figured out. And I was planning
1: on getting to this later, but you kind of dove into it now. So you have this whole Rolodex of, like you mentioned, of connections. How do you get those? Because now that you have them and now that you're established, I assume it's pretty easy for you to talk to people and make further connections. But when you were just starting out, what was that like?
0: Well, the number one thing is don't bullshit people. I mean, that's really one of the most important lessons when I, um, when I took capital from the first time from an investor, um, you know, it was, uh, um, debt on the business that would convert to equity, um, if the business did well. And what I had explained as my original plan, though it was a good idea, um, I made a couple of big mistakes right in the beginning that, um, uh, caused us to stumble and it would have been really easy for me to, you know, blame a shift sort of in the market space, um, at that time on the tech side, which certainly happened, but, um, you know, ultimately it was my responsibility. And I, uh, called up the investor and said, Hey, can we, you know, can we meet and get together and went right into his office. And I just said, listen, I, I, I F this thing up, you know, this was, um, what I thought was going to happen. This is what ended up happening. Um, but here's how I'm going to remedy it. And, um, the, you know, the, the remedy, the fix ended up, um, working out well. And he not only, you know, got his money back, but, uh, was able to get a great return, although it took a little bit longer than I you know, had originally, um, intended. But I think one of the reasons, not only did he get his money back and not only, um, uh, that would, to that meeting go well, he also reinvested, um, later on in the business. I have two questions about that.
1: I don't know if you can answer either of them, but I feel like I have to ask is first, what was the mistake you made? And then the second one is what was that meeting like? Can you take us in there and how that went with you telling him, Hey, I lost this huge chunk of money?
0: Well, yeah, the first, um, uh, real issue was that I, you know, I took a lot of money from him, but I didn't take as much money as I needed. You know, the, the, the burn rate was higher than I expected the time it took for um us to start pulling in revenue and being able to uh, see profitability and and some of the market segments we were in um it just took longer and that's something that you always want to brace for because more often than not things always cost more than you expect they always take longer the meeting itself was uh was fine i mean i think the um uh, you know i cold called him we were in different cities but i um um, you know, requested a sit down meeting, just said I was going to be traveling to his city later in the week, we get together and, um, you know, just calmly explain the situation. And I said, you know, I know it's not ideal. I said, I, uh, anytime I've taken capital from people, I always, uh, spend it judiciously. I spend it as if it were my own money because ultimately it is. And, um, and then I flat out said, you know, I felt, I effed up. This is, uh, how we're going to remedy the situation and, um, you know, just know that I'm going to you know keep busting my tail, um, to make you whole and to, you know, keep moving forward.
1: How did he take that? Obviously your remedy had to help kind of calm his nerves, but in the beginning part when you told him that, or did you not even give him a chance to answer? You just said, Hey, here's how I effed up. Here's how I'm going to fix it.
0: No, no. I mean, it certainly gave him the time to answer. I think that, um, you know, ultimately him getting his money back was dependent upon me continuing to push forward. Um, And he has said since then that that's something that he really appreciated and really admired. And then when I finally started getting, um, uh, you know, a couple of successful um, projects uh, within the company off the ground, then, you know, he was elated and and happy for me personally. Um, But really, I mean, it was, this is kind of goes back to finding, the right people, he was always more happy for me personally. You know, he was a successful guy. The amount of money that he invested in me um, was, uh, you know, insignificant in terms of his net worth. It meant a lot to me. Um, and I think that, um, you know, he, he probably invested with some sort of notion that, you know, obviously there's a good chance you don't, you, you know, we'll never see the money back. Um, cause it's the nature of how startup investments tend to go. But I think he, you know, respected what I wanted to do and, and how I came about it. And ultimately, um, when you give people capital in the startup phase, you are investing in them as a person, um, more time even, uh, than the idea itself. Assuming this was one of
1: your first pitches asking for money, what was your pitch to him to get it? Oh, this
0: was not the first pitch. There, oh, okay. <laughs> this was the first pitch. Um, there was about um, uh, forty to fifty conversations before that that ended in no's. Um, and worse than um, you know, hearing a no is hearing a maybe that lasts several weeks or a couple of months that then turns into a no. Um, so that's an important lesson I mean, if you're. An investor who's going out and uh, you have to move into a space quickly or you're trying to take capital quickly or assemble a team quickly, Um, you know, tough but fair. And you got to give a firm deadline and, um, you know, try to uh, uh, move the project along as fast as possible. But, but, um, yeah, we heard no probably 30, 40 times from different people before um, the first investor came aboard. But that's the nature of the game how do you keep
1: the same enthusiasm? You know, one or two no's and still going, I feel like you probably have to expect, but after 40 or 50, how do you keep that same enthusiasm from rejection to rejection?
0: Well, I think you, um, you know, when you hear from the first few potential investors, you get a good sense of the questions that they're gonna ask, and you figure out how you can refine your plan to answer those questions before you even have, you know, before you even go into the meeting. So that allows uh, subsequent uh, meetings with investors to go more smoothly. But, um, and, and that also sort of helps with the process of you know, as you go along, you may still hear no's as we did, but the questions become more succinct. You know, what they're asking is, uh, um, you know, you can tell the conversations are moving forward in a way where they understand what you're trying to do better. Um, but the biggest thing is don't take it personally. You know, these guys, if, if, um, you're a high net worth person and you're willing to do startup or angel, you know, investing, these people are pitched all the time. You know, they, they have people coming at them, um, for money all the time. They look at lots of pitches. They meet with lots of, uh, startup executives. And, um, you know, you just don't take it personally. Um, the biggest thing is if you believe in the product, if you believe in the market space, you just have to keep pushing forward. Um, it's, it's really is perseverance, um, is extremely important. I don't know if you've seen the movie the uh, the founder about Ray Kroc and McDonald's mm-hmm. but yep. uh, you know in the end of the line this is a guy by the way who sort of stole the idea, right? right. to a certain degree, um, although he improved it and made it larger than the uh, the McDonald's brothers ever imagined. But you know at the end of the movie he said that there is nothing more common than, you know, uh, great men with great ideas. But it's really about can you implement them? Um, and in startup investing or trying to raise capital or get a company off the ground, the, the perseverance um, factor is um, uh, extremely important. Now, what was the company or product you were trying to get off the ground in this early phase? Well, we were trying to get a, a, a digital media company off the ground, um, and it was a uh, really a publishing company behind a, a dot-com, sort of similar to what you see um, now with a lot of uh, sort of millennial-focused publishers moving into that space. Um, I just, you know, the, the big mistake I made was... Um, not really, you know, realizing how much capital it was going to take or spending more capital than I thought it was going to take for us to hit some of those benchmarks. And, um, um, and then we, um, suffered from some of the tech changes. Um, you know, Facebook came out and changed their algorithm away from publishers. Some of the things that we tried to Im- implement on the tech side, uh, became, um, uh, much more difficult after some of the, uh, uh, the breaches, that happens So the social media companies and some of the platforms uh changed the rules so the the, you know the the time it took to get approval for certain things went from a few days to a couple of months so um you know i in a certain way what we did with that original uh, capital from the investor is we shift focus into another project so we, we, we we made that pivot um, but if we hadn't done that, um, we would be suffering like some of the big guys are who are still, um, in that publishing, you know, directly to a.com, uh, website.
1: So if we backtrack a little bit and go back to your college days or even your post college days, where did the whole focus on political documentaries come into play?
0: So I, uh, I grew up in New York, um, nine 11 had a big impact on me so i became really politically motivated um after 9 11 and started following the news paying attention to the news and um you know i was a i was a kid when it happened and um so i was fascinated by current events and you know what happened and where did this come from and uh what the response was going to be and i remember uh, at school, kids talking about, oh, maybe it's, you know, Saddam Hussein and certain things. And this is, you know, the day of or, or right after. Um, so I, I just became fascinated with news and, you know, the fallout of 9-11 and, and um, you know, what happened with uh, the military response, you know, from the U.S. And um, it was just fascinating to me. Uh, it was, first of all, it was, you know, it was a horrific event, but it was, you um, it was something that launched my passion with news. Um, and then the politics thing sort of quickly followed. I think, um, I grew up in a household where we really didn't talk about politics a lot growing up. My political or my parents, uh, political sentiment was pretty clear now that I look back, but it wasn't something that was actively discussed. And, um, so i really got to watch the news for myself and figure out personally where my political views were and um at that point i went and started volunteering for candidates at the local level and um you know school board candidates and certain things and um you know what they say anybody who's worked in politics they often describe it as the mafia right once you're in you can never get out and that's what i found with uh with politics so um, it's actually been a good business for me to be in, um, uh, you know, for, for several years now, but, um, yeah, it's tough and it's a grind. The great thing about politics is it's always a battle, right? The war is never over. So it, there's no permanent victories. You know, your side could win. And then a couple of years later, it goes back to the other side. Um, and that's what keeps it fun and entertaining. Um, and that's how I look at it. So where did the documentaries come into play then? Because I think
1: if I have your bio right, you actually hosted a radio show for a little bit and then helped out a political campaign where you had a, a nice fortuitous chance encounter with a couple people that did documentaries that you met.
0: Yeah, so I was working, um, I was working in talk radio at the time, and I, um, um, that opportunity came about because on election day in 2008, I was pa- passing out campaign literature uh, for the McCain campaign. And I happened to meet the local afternoon uh, talk radio host um, from that city, and he and I got along really well. I was a uh, you know uh, freshman in college at that point, and um, uh, he and I got along really well. And even though I was in a different city, I went to work for him, uh, being his remote you know producer and writer for his show. And uh, six months after that, I started filling in for host um, when they were out of the country, and. I started to do that more and more. And then, um, you know, there was always opportunities for me to be able to fill in for different hosts around the country. Um, and then from that, I ended up meeting a guy named Dave Brett, who at the time was a college professor and he and I sort of bonded over politics and, uh, he was doing a project with uh, a friend of mine and, um, uh, got along really well. And I got a call from Dave Brat in uh, the day after Thanksgiving, 2013. And he goes, Hey, I think I'm going to challenge the house majority leader in the United States Congress, Eric Cantor. And I was like, yeah, you should do that. I think that would be a, uh, <laughs> I think that would be a good idea. Um, so I sort of, uh, uh, you know, I think put the seed into his head that he had a viable chance of winning. And, um, so the day after Christmas of that year, 2013, I drove with D- Dave to uh, Washington DC. I had a, uh, an interview with Betsy Woodruff, who was at national review at the time. She's now with the daily beast. And, um, she did a great, uh, profile story about Dave Bratt and, um, they national review agreed to sit on the story until Dave officially announced, which was a couple of weeks later. And, uh, uh, for people not familiar with this story, it's the first time a House majority leader, leader has ever been ousted, um, let alone in a primary. He, uh, Kaner spent five and a half million dollars. Dave Bratt spent two hundred thousand. Eric Kaner actually spent more at steakhouses in Washington, D.C., than Dave Bratt spent on his entire campaign. Wow. And yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was about, uh, I think Dave's campaign spent about a hundred and ninety thousand. Eric Cantor's, on, on his entire campaign, Eric Cantor's campaign spent about 223000 on steakhouses houses for fundraising events in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Holy cow. And that he was not connected with the district. The day of the primary, Eric Cantor was spotted at uh, Starbucks in Washington, D.C. So that is a uh, two, two and a half hour drive to his district. Um, so he you know wasn't even in the district. So the long story is, um five and a half million versus two hundred thousand and Dave Bratt beat Eric Cantor by eleven points um in that primary. Wow, how about that? Yeah, so that's something that uh sort of sent shockwaves through Washington, DC. I mean, I heard stories that um when you know, you know, Fox News broke to this story, it went right to the the top headline on Drudge Report. Um and when it happened, when it looked like you know, um, Caner was going to lose. There was lights, you know, flicking on inside the Capitol because you had staffers and members rushing back because oh, this yeah. is the House Majority Leader. Um, you know, a, a position that uh, uh, no one has ever been ousted from since it was created, and I think like 1888. You know, um, so it was uh, uh, sort of a groundbreaking move, and I think it was a pivotal move towards. Um, a lot of uh, people with no political experience running for political office and and winning. I mean, I have no doubt that uh, President Trump, whether you like him or not, you know, looked at things like Dave Brat's victory over Eric Cantor and and saw a path forward, um, you know, where where that was a space that he could enter and uh, make a disruption. So
1: as you're getting your feet entrenched in the whole in Washington DC in the political game and you're meeting these congressmen, where does the documentary come into play? Because you produce the swamp, which is a fantastic documentary on Facebook. You've gotten millions of viewers, but you started out, like you said, you were a talk radio show host and then you're helping Dave Brat. How did you get to, I'm going to start making documentaries. I'm going to do this on film.
0: Well, I think you, um, um, You know, there's a lot of uh, people who are very good at coming up with original ideas. And there's a lot of people who can look at things that are currently going on and quickly improve upon them. Um, And that's what I did with uh, The Swamp to a certain degree. Um, Showtime came out with a great series called The Circus. And, um, you know, it was a political follow documentary where it followed Mark Halperin and and John Hillman and and, uh, and others. Um, But I wanted to, you know, sort of improve upon that and really do a deep dive into what is going on in Congress. Why is it dysfunctional um, and really be able to follow some entertaining uh, and engaging congressmen around the Hill and just hear firsthand from them why D.C. is messed up. Um, and I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't partisan, um, you know, or, or, or overtly political. Um, so I had the idea for the swamp and, and two good friends of mine had made the Netflix documentary get me Roger Stone, which did really well. And I reached out to them, Fred and Morgan. And I said, Hey, listen, I have this idea. I said, I don't know if we can get through the approval process with house ethics committee, but I really want to do this, you know, follow documentary, um, with some of these members. And it was a, it was an idea that they uh, you know really saw the value in right away, um, and then it was this long process of meeting with members, you know, finding uh, congressmen, congresswomen who were interested, and then we actually got the thumbs up from them pretty quickly. And then it kicked off this six month approval process from having to go through House Ethics Committee and Office of General Counsel and House Building Commission. And every time that I thought we had cleared the necessary agencies, you know, one of these other groups um, popped up that we had to get approval from. Um, So that was frustrating. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, the series came together really well. Um, You know, I think we, uh, between five episodes, it was 20 million viewers. Um, with all of the content that we produced. That was a, um, I had a sort of a, uh, I have a love hate relationship with that project because it was a series that we tried to sell to the networks a year ago. You know, so I had two partners, experienced filmmakers who had just did a great project on Netflix. Um, a major talent agency um, in LA um, agreed to represent the project. They put us in touch with. Half a dozen different production firms. We selected a firm um, that had won multiple Emmys, did a lot of uh, 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 you know feature documentary work for different networks. They had just won the Emmy when uh, last year when uh, for a documentary series. When we went out to pitch the different networks, you know we went to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and um, uh, different networks, and um, you know I think we. Sort of ran into the political wall where all of our guys were from one political party. Um, And that decision to do that was mainly made because, um, you know, they were four uh, members of the House Freedom Caucus, this sort of rebellious group of Republicans. And Republicans were in control uh, of the House. Um, And, you know, they were the ones who had um the firepower to be able to disrupt the process. They, you know, issued the kill shot on um, the, the president's first uh, health care bill. And we thought it was a fascinating group of individuals to be able to follow. Um, the networks, although they love the concept, were amazed that we had gotten through ethics, um, decided not to pull the trigger. Um, so I you know, quickly made the decision that I was going to move forward with it as a Facebook series, um, and and see how it goes. And, um, I, you know, I, I certainly don't think that the project is, uh, dead yet. Not that I can reveal too much, but that's a little bit of, uh, you know, peeking behind the door.
1: What really Uh, interests me about your story is it's not like you went to film school or anything. Um, obviously throughout your life and talking to you, you're not opposed to taking risks but how was that with not having any background in film and now you're producing a documentary?
0: Well, it's one of the great things about you know the internet and what you can do. You can find amazingly talented people um, who actually don't cost you a lot of money. You know, I mean, with, with what you're doing now in this podcast, I mean, this is something that you really couldn't have done 10 years ago, right? I mean, the the equipment and the cost and um, the cost of, of trying to market it and get people to listen to it be considerably higher than it is now. You know, you have people, you have young filmmakers, you know, 17, 18 years old who are making short films using their iPhone and they look amazing. Um, So, yes, I I cannot, uh, you know, I've I've launched a documentary series that's gotten tens of millions of views, a lot of press, um, and I don't really know how to turn the camera on. (laughs) <laughs> you know so not with knowing how to change out lenses and everything else, but I have a really good idea of of what I want of what I think is interesting. Um, I have the talk radio background, so I know how to interview the guys. I know how to push back on them when they don't want to answer certain questions. Um, you know, and then I went out and and found uh you know people who were great videographers who knew um that space really well. You know, and that's what I've always done with different projects. You know, you go out and I have found people who are smarter and more talented than I am. Um, And it doesn't matter whether it's um, videography or filmmaking or it's editing or it's, um, you know, somebody who's a potential, um, you know, chief technology officer for your business or a CFO for your business. You just go out and you find people who are smarter and talented, more talented than you are um, and who are loyal and you unite those people around a sort of a shared vision. Um, and the great thing about being, um, an entrepreneur, even though I don't like that word is that the shared vision that you're uniting these people around is yours. Why don't you like the word entrepreneur? Cause I think most of the people who end up using it, um, let me rephrase that. I think most of the people who end up using it, have never really created a company, you know, it's sort of the word that's like a joke. Um, you, you know, you hear from a lot of women on dating sites who, um, will see a guy's profile and it says entrepreneur and they immediately swipe cause they assume he's broke, which, <laughs> That's an accurate thing, right? I was broke for most of my 20s trying to get different projects um, up and off the ground. But um, I don't know. I just prefer, you know, startup founder or something, you know, along those lines. Um, More so than entrepreneur. Um, I I think it's just it's it's almost become a cliche term for what it is Um, rather than, you know, I, I don't think it accurately expresses what you're doing. Um, I think you're much better off, you know, saying, Oh, I run a media company or I run a tech startup or, you know, I run a, a you know, a finance platform or a finance app. Um, or whatever I run a, a you know, honey making company, you know, right? I run a, a small candle making shop other than using the word entrepreneur. Um, it's just too vague of a term. It doesn't really convey what you're doing. Can you talk about your twenties? You had mentioned you were broke. What was that
1: time like for you trying to get all these companies off the ground and not having anything?
0: Um Is that scary? You know, I gotta assume it is. Um Not really. I, I don't know. I've never compared myself to other people. So I, you know, I had a lot of friends um, who I'm so really close with who were um, you know, we just took a different path in life. So they were going to work for different companies and, uh, you know, traveling and all of that. I really wasn't interested in that as much as I was with, you know, building a a big company, um, and being able to hire people. And, um, I, I don't know. I never compared myself. I still don't. I never compare myself in terms of, you know, where I'm at success or life vision or business vision with anybody else. Um, No, I mean, it's certainly not fun, you know, to, to struggle and, uh, you know, to then compound it with hearing no's from everyone, you know, like we talked about earlier, but if you believe in something, you just gotta, you know, keep moving forward. How did you get
1: through that time? Was it a big break or was it a series of smaller steps that you took? (laughs)
0: Um, no, I mean, it was, um, for the most part, it was, um, let me restart that. I think the thing that I that was most helpful during that process was I was really building a big Rolodex, uh, you know, in a big network of people. Um, they were really, really talented people. And because I was young and I had this sort of youthful exuberance, um, you know, they could they were you know more so willing to help me out. The good thing about doing a lot of this stuff young is that when you don't have, um, you know, a lot of experience, you don't have a lot of money and you're trying to convince people or investors that your ideas are, are solid and they're, they're, you know, worthy of their time and capital, you know, you have to annoy the hell out of them because, you know, people are really busy. And like I said earlier, they, they hear pitches all the time. And, um, you know, you have to sometimes really, you know, just push them and, or annoy them um, and, and stay on them. Um, and when you're younger, there's certainly an advantage to doing that, right? Nobody wants like a 50 year old guy, um, uh, coming at you who's, you know, trying to raise money for a certain project. Um, so you can get away with a lot more being young and trying to do that. How did you get those first meetings when you're in your 20s and you don't have anything attached to your name? It's the, the same way I still get a lot of meetings. The same way I got meetings with the congressman when we filmed the swamp, it was cold calling them. I mean, I, I really, I think it's surprising how few people are willing to just pick up the phone and cold call people. I do it with emails all the time. Um, and most of the people are, are surprisingly, uh, you know, willing to help on a phone call with you or meet you for coffee um i mean cold calling has been a vitally important aspect of what i have done in my life um you know those investors that i met the first couple of people um it was cold calling them. and it was uh you know getting their assistance on the phone hey can i send you a quick one pager you know can you pass it along and then staying on them you know uh over a couple of weeks until you finally get the meeting and then from those meetings, they go, oh, well, I know, you know, Paul and Nancy and James, you should go and talk to them. Um, but cold calling has been a, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine, uh, where I would be if I wasn't willing to pick up the phone and ask people for a meeting or, you know, ask people to take a look at a project or company. I was trying to get off the ground.
1: Do you have any like tips or tricks that you've used to stand out from the crowd? Because I assume nowadays, like you mentioned, I don't know how many people are cold calling, but as far as finding email address, email addresses and sending those, do you have any template that you use to kind of stick out from the crowd? Cause I'm sure they get thousands of them.
0: You know, it's funny. I, um, um, I, I think I told you a couple of months ago, uh, when you and I met for coffee that I was interested in buying, uh, more so for kicks than anything else, but I was interested in buying Newsweek magazine. And, um, the, it's a company that got hit with uh, a lot of, uh, uh, scandals. Their offices were raided in, in February. Um, but I loved the Newsweek brand for what it used to be in the sense that it's an 88 year old, you know, iconic brand. They've, uh, you know, you can go and find the magazine, uh, the Newsweek magazine of, uh, the Challenger disaster. And when JFK was killed, um, and I, I go, and that's, a, it would be a great property to be able to own. So I wanted to send an email to the two guys who own Newsweek. And, um, you know, I had their name from, again, all these different stories about the company in the beginning of the year. And uh, you can go to Google and you just type in email checker. And, uh, you sort of find different variations of the people's name, right? So it's normally like uh, a first initial last name at, you know, whatever the company is. Um, and I did that a couple of times until I got the email address from those two guys because I didn't know anybody who, who knew them. Um, and, uh, you know, so you just send emails that way, um, whatever it takes to get you connected with the person that you want to talk to, you have to be willing to do.
1: And in that same meeting where me and you, uh, I think we were in D.C. and we met for coffee and so much of your professional career has been about connections, a lot like you allude to right now. And a couple of quotes that really stuck with me that I want you to kind of talk about and how they impact you is one of them you said, I take meetings with anybody and everybody and you still do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do. I take meetings. Um, you know, with people from uh, different backgrounds and in, in different industries when um uh, first of all, I, I think it's because, you know, I came from a family where my uh, my parents are both in medicine. Right. So they uh, starting a business or being in politics or being in media. Um, you know, they have no background and they have no connections. To them. So any of the connections that I have, whether it's Congressman on the Hill or, you know, uh, financial guys in New York are because I've put those connections together myself. Um, so I, I, uh, you know, when somebody reaches out to me for a meeting or for advice or for help, um, I, I really try to do my best to, um, help, you know, however I can. Um, I, and I love connecting people, you know, a lot of people who end up leaving meetings with me, I've already, you know, I've introduced to a couple of other people. Um, and then, you know, that's beneficial because six months or a year from now, I'm going to go, Oh, you know, I, I, know I can reach out to John because he knows so-and-so. Um, and then, you know, I can call that person up and say, Hey, you know, do you mind making a, an introduction? Um, and that's how it works. I mean, especially how it works in New York and DC. Um, but it, you know, it, it works that way anywhere.
1: Then the next quote you had that I really loved because it just kind of shows and highlights your work ethic is you said, you've got to fly, you got to put in the work and grind, and then you have to take bad meetings. It's all part of it because 90% of it all is going to fall through.
0: Yeah. I mean, I keep a lot of balls in the air because most things do fall through. Um, and that, you know, goes back to what I said earlier of you can't be disappointed. You know, most things don't work out. Most things don't work out the way that you expect. Um, you know, so you just quickly learn from it and move on. The, the really the most important thing is, um, you know, I don't kid myself. I don't hang on to losers, um, in terms of, you know, ideas or, uh, strategies. Um, but I never take any of that stuff personally and you just have to keep charging ahead. So
1: what are some of the bad meetings that you take? You know, you fly across the country and you're leaving that meeting like, man, that's bad. What does that bad meeting look like? Is that just a no or?
0: Well, yeah, a lot of times it's just a no. But I've, you know, I've done things where, um, you know, I've had people say, oh, you should talk to uh, Joe Smith. You know, he could potentially be a backer for your company. And, um, uh, you know, I had a guy say, oh, he's going to actually going to be at this um, uh, reception that I'm going to be at. You should come. It was a different city. I was in my early 20s. I really didn't have a lot of money, and um, I said, "Okay." So I got, uh, you know, I, I flew to the city. I got the cheapest hotel room that I could find. Um, I, uh, you know, got there with not a lot of time uh, to get to the meeting because I had to buy, you know, an inexpensive flight. And um, so I got to the meeting and I uh, uh, this luncheon and, um, I went up to talk to the guy afterwards. Um, and he, he was just somebody who was, he was a jerk. You know, I said, Hey, um, your good friend, Paul said that we should talk. Um, you know, I have an idea that I want to pick your brain about. And he goes, I can't help you. And I was like, well, no, I know that you can't help, you know, maybe from a financial backing, but I just wanted to, uh, to get your opinion on a couple of things. I can't help you just like that. And, um, you know, I laugh at that story now and, and other people, you know, that I've told that story too, we sort of laugh at it. Um, but you know, that, that's uh, certainly an example of, uh, not a great meeting. Um, how do you handle that rejection? Um, you know, it what it, it sucked at the time because, you know, I didn't have a lot of money and I went there specifically to meet this guy and granted I didn't have an, a meeting and, uh, I'm sure that people, you know, approach him a lot of times sort of for advice or feedback. Um, you know, quite frankly, you know, he was, you know, he was a jerk at how he responded. Um, and it sucked. And, you know, I, I, uh, had a red eye flight back, back to, um, New York at the time. But, um, how do you deal with it? Um, you know, I think you just sort of chalk it up. I mean, it really sucked the day it happened. Um, but a week later it was, you know, sort of comical. Um, especially when I, you know, it's good to have a couple of people, who are not in your industry or business that you're you know, close to and it's funny to be able to sort of swap stories. And when I told them that story, you know, they started laughing and they were like, wow, that guy's sort of a dick. Um, and then that became the big joke, you know? So I, I have uh, uh, the same guy who told you the parking lot story um, will go to me now and just say, I can't help you <laughs> you know, when I'm mid sentence. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens. You just got to, you know, take your lumps and uh, move on. And another big thing that
1: you always impress upon me is whatever industry you're in and you dabble in so many different industries, which I think is the most impressive thing about you. But you told me numerous times is you just got to dive in and you learn along the way.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's really is uh, a lot of it. Um, and, and I sort of have that same philosophy when it comes to, um, you know, getting your product or your service out there. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of times um, when it's just better to release um, sort of an, an earlier version of whatever you're doing so that you can get feedback um, rather than, um, you know, putting out the complete finished product of what you think the market wants um so I think that the um um what exactly was what your question in terms of uh
1: it was more so um how you just dive in and you learn along the way even though you're in uh, these industries and maybe you don't have a background in them
0: necessarily yeah I mean, yeah. And it goes back to, you know, being able to find people who are smarter and more talented than you are. Um, and that's something that um, I think I've been really good at throughout my career. Um, but I've never been afraid, right, to enter a new space, you know, or a new industry. You know, if I have a good idea, um, and, you know, it's, it's a great thing about the Internet. You can figure out without a lot of research, you know, are you onto something or not? Um, and that's what I did, you know, with the swamp, you know, I, because I had the sort of Rolodex of context, I made a couple of calls and then, you know, very quickly, um, I was connected to the two guys that I mentioned who made the Netflix documentary, Give Me Roger Stone. I mean, I think I made one phone call to uh, a good friend of mine and he goes, I have just the guys that you should talk to.
1: And then I assume part of that too is instead of just using contacts all the time, and I think you mentioned this earlier, you're also connecting people too.
0: Oh yeah, it's, I mean it's definitely a two way street. Uh, Any time um, somebody connects you with someone, um, yeah, you have to do the same thing down the road of being able to connect them with other people um, or being able to help you know them out as as much as possible. I think. One of the things that you have to do when you're younger and you don't have the ability to help some of these people out who help you out is uh, you have to be above and beyond uh, thankful for their help. Um, And that really goes to, you know, what I said in the beginning about, you know, don't be yes people. The other side of that is you have to be genuinely thankful when when people help you out, you know, because you um, you want to connect people that you like with other people that you like. Um, and part of that goes, you know, part of that is, um, you know, you have to be, even though when I was younger and, and very, you know, energetic and had a lot of energy and uh, with what I wanted to do, um, I always respected these guys time, you know? So I, I kept meetings short, you know, headlines only. And, um, yeah, just uh, considerate of their time, and uh, was always genuinely very thankful when somebody did me a favor, and I try to do the same thing now. Do
1: you have any tips or tactics you use because you have such a deep rolodex of contacts
0: to maintain those contacts? Um, I mean, yeah, the, the best thing is if you always ask people to introduce you to people, with ever you know, with with not doing. Something for them in return. Eventually, you're going to lose that contact, right? And there's some people who uh, introduce, who, who do things for me all the time, who are at such a level that I can't, you know, I, I can't do anything that they can't already get done, or you know, introduce them to people they can't already meet. Um, so, you know, with those uh, those type of people. Um you have to be very very select in when you ask them to connect you with somebody you know uh so you definitely don't want to burn out those bridges but just you know I mean just be genuinely thankful that somebody's taking time out of their day to help you out you know it's a it's a great great sign of respect when somebody's willing to connect you in business with somebody else or in any time right or you know even dating right so it's uh um, yeah, just you know, be respectful of their time and and realize that um that simple act of being able to connect you is what has really pushed you know industry along for the last couple hundred years. I mean, that is more so than your pedigree or you know, what school you went to. I hire people all the time or I don't even look at resumes. I don't care where they went to school, I don't care if they were dropouts, I don't care um, whether they're, you know, what their socioeconomic standard was, you know, when they grew up, um, I look at their work and I judge them by that. And I also judge them just quickly by their personality. Um, and when you do this stuff long enough, you quickly pick up, you know, is the person a bullshit artist or are they solid? You know, and a lot of times their work speaks for themselves and you can't, you know, there, you can't judge people based on their, you know, they conduct themselves in an interview. Um I mean there's people who I have hired for different projects that um I maybe personally, you know, uh didn't like, but it didn't matter because their work was solid, you know. So uh the more talented you are, you know, as an employee, the the more you can get away with if you if you deliver. As
1: you've gone through the hiring process and been through it for years. I'm interested to know, have you figured out any ways to immediately detect when someone's bullshitting you or is it just a feeling?
0: Yeah. I mean, the the, the more you do this and the more deals you work on, you very quickly figure out, um, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're... Um, if somebody's trying to sell you something, I, I, I hate to just say, you know, keep saying bullshitting you, but it's, it's the best word to describe it, right? Like you pick up on things um, pretty quickly if, if people are full of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just, um, you know, the, the more deals you do, the more you interact with people, the more you negotiate with people, it becomes easier to be able to, you know, spot certain things. Um, but, um, yeah, th- th- that's a big thing. You never know where talented people are going to come from. You know?
1: What's the most interesting thing you've learned from having to develop an app?
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, I can't code uh, a single line of code myself, you know, so that the whole process of, um, you know, uh, working on the design and, uh, you know, finding a, a decent designer and, you know, uh, being able to, again, I, you know, I tapped into my network of a couple of people who had you know, released apps before and was able to get their insight and things like this. And I ended up getting a call, you know, from, uh, some people who had worked on a similar project who said, Hey, you know, I have the people that, uh, that you should talk to about this. So for the last series of this
1: interview, I just kind of want to go rapid fire questions for you. And you can take a shorter as long as you want with these. It can elicit a story. We can go from there. I'll just kind of leave it up to you, whatever you want. Are to we do. going to do
0: some word association?
1: I don't you have any, long, but, we, but we could if you really wanted to. <laughs> um, what are some daily habits you've picked up that you feel have made the biggest impact on your life? Well, my
0: daily habits when I was younger used to be black coffee and cigarettes, which uh, <laughs> allowed me to skip uh, breakfast and get right to work. Um, now that I've gotten older and uh, a little wiser, um, you know, daily habits. Um, you know, I basically have a pretty set routine um, from uh, from sort of how I operate. But um, daily habits. Um I don't know. I, 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 the biggest thing is, um, if you, you know, really love what you do, you're willing to do it all the time, you know? So there, I, I, don't have a problem at all with pushing off, you know, doing things on the weekend in order to work, you know? And I don't have a problem with, uh, so to answer your question, I think the biggest, uh, habit that I have that's, uh, really beneficial is, um, I try to judge my time, you know, well, uh, use my time well. And, um, you know, that means, you know, you have to put off, uh, attending a a certain birthday party for somebody or, um, you know, only showing up for 30 minutes instead of two hours in order to get back and, and continue working. Um, you have to be willing to do that. How do you know
1: when you're working hard enough?
0: how do I know when I'm working hard enough? Um, that's a good question. It's, it's normally when the room is on fire, right? (laughs) And everything is like not going well. Um, you know, that's just the, the nature that to me is, um, the time that I am, uh, I most enjoy what I do when the, when the energy is high, when the stress level is really high. When you're you know you have calls coming in and you're you know trying to get something done in a short amount of time, um, I really enjoy that. I, I always have. Um, so yeah, normally when the uh, uh, when my life is frenzied, um, that's when I know that we're working hard on something.
1: What's the worst advice you hear given? And this can be in any field or just life in
0: general. Well. I hear a lot of bad bosses or a lot of bad managers use the sort of cliche, don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution to staff or employees. And I think you tend to hear this from younger managers uh, or younger bosses. Uh, That is stupid advice Um, because ultimately, you know, you're the boss and you have uh, employees who are very good at what they do, but there's a certain experience level, which is why you're the boss and they're the employee. Um, it's much better to know about problems immediately. Um, when you are the, uh, founder or you are, you know, uh, sort of the, the sole proprietor where you have an idea and you're trying to execute, but in the beginning it's just you, um, when things start to take off and you, you know, you're hiring people or, um, you're putting out, um, uh, you know, bigger products or services, there's sort of a natural inclination of uh, letting smaller things fall to other people. I'm very much a micromanager Um, and there are a lot of times when I could, you know, designate something to someone else. Um, But it's a lot better for me just to pick up the phone and call people. Um, I, which I, by the way, I think is also an important lesson. I, I actually had, I'm going, uh, <laughs> the rest of the world is advancing and I think I'm regressing a little bit. I have a, uh, a desk phone installed, um, in my office. Um, and I use it probably more so than I do email. Um, cause I, it's, for me, it's much easier to pick up the phone and get somebody on the phone. Um, and I think that that then conveys to the other person, you know, how serious you take this or everything else. Plus there is, you know, normally when I want information I want an answer right away and picking up the phone and getting people on the phone is, is the easiest way to do that. So in a wireless world, you're going back to being. I'm going drivers. back to the old phone, man. I'm going back to the old phone. The, the other thing is too, and this is, you know, sort of goes back to what I said about uh, tough but fair You know, I have never, when I, when I was uh, in high school, I I was doing masonry work, right? So I worked, I was working construction and uh, you know, here I am 16, 17 and I spend my summers on, you know, chopping mortar and doing point work on uh, uh, brick houses and things. And um, you know, that is a tough, tough business. And the only way to really keep contractors in the line from what I learned from uh, big home builders and things um, is to yell at them. So I, uh, I'm a passionate person with what I do, but I don't have a problem with picking up the phone. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, giving someone an earful when it's deserved and, um, yeah, that's the, uh, the, not to sound, you know, like a jerk or overly harsh. Um, but the, uh, the phone sort of getting slammed down into the receiver can be a good, uh, motivator when, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, people need it. Um, so I like having the, the old school desk phone.
1: I know a lot of people reach out to you as I have too um, to get your advice and talk about how you got to where you are. So when you're listening and talking to people, whether it's through connections or you're mentoring someone, what's the worst excuse you hear for why people don't pursue something or why they quit on it?
0: Um, you know, I, I, it's funny when you, um, a lot of times people see mountains where I ever, you know, I, I, only just saw, you know, little Hills. Um, and that's normally a really good indicator right away that the person doesn't have what it takes to, to continue pushing forward with a project. You know, I, I, basically for years, you know, I I struggled with not having a lot of money and trying to get different things off the ground. So I see people all the time who six months into, you know, working on their dream project or their new business or whatever fold. And it's not because, you know, they're really struggling. It's because things don't work on, you know, don't work out. And generally 95% of the public, when you look at people, who are really successful? You see the beginning. Oh, I had this great idea, and then you see a couple of years down the road. Wow, it really worked out. You know, look how much money you know Joe Smith is making. And what you don't realize is the you know uh, layer of shit that they had to climb through for years in order to make that a reality. I mean, it's much more difficult to launch a company from scratch and, and be able to scale it up than most people think.
1: And kind of in that same vein, this is a good segue to my next question is why do you think you were able to succeed or what do you think makes you different?
0: Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm still certainly not where I want to be, you know? So I think that, um, you know, there's, there's never really an end point. I, I had a meeting with, um, A potential investor years ago, you know, old guy and and certainly you know, he worth a couple hundred million dollars and could certainly have retired and um you know, let his kids run the business. But uh I you know, I just knew his passion with what he did. And every time I went into his office, he was showing me, Hey, this is what we're working on, you know, or was telling me about a business trip that he just took and I turned to him and I said, uh I go, you're never going to retire, are you? And he goes, no. He goes, I will be perfectly happy dying behind that desk. And, uh, you know, I say that to a lot of people. uh, You know, I've told that story to, you know, friends of mine who uh, are employees or, you know, work for companies. And, um, you know, it it doesn't resonate with them. Makes total sense to me. I mean, I, um, you know, when you really like what you do... You don't mind doing it seven days a week or, you know, pushing off vacations to uh, to continue building whatever you're trying to build. That's
1: kind of a common theme I've had in all the interviews I've done is when you reach a certain point or you even want to get to a certain point of success, what you're doing almost has to become an obsession.
0: Yeah, it really does. I mean, you just have to be willing to. Uh, you know, you. Uh, keep moving forward. You know, there's a, you know, there's a great line that the um, the booze come from the cheap seats, you know, so ignore them because there's going to be a lot of people who just say, why are you still working on that thing? You know, or, you know, that thing hasn't worked out, you know, why don't you go and get a job or do whatever? And you just have to brush those people off and uh, keep moving forward.
1: So what's the obstacle that you're proudest to overcome or maybe the one that catapulted you to new heights that really comes to mind?
0: Um, you know, I think hearing no from so many different people and then finally hearing yes, um, you know, from a, from an investor, that's a great, great feeling when you, especially to be in your twenties and to have somebody who is, you know, very successful, who is willing to write you, you know, a big check for you to get your business off the ground. I mean, that's a, that's a great, great feeling. And, um, you know, the, your, your initial reaction is to be like, ha, you know, I told those other investors, I didn't have that view. I just, you know, I had the cash and, uh, I immediately wanted to, to get to work. So that's, you know, anytime that you hear knows when you're trying to raise capital and then finally hear yes, that's a great feeling.
1: I'm gonna ask this next question in two different ways. One might be easier than the other. So I'll let you um, take it whichever way you'd like. But is there some things that you haven't done that you would like to do? Or the other way I could phrase
0: that is, what are your adulthood goals? My adulthood goals? That's a a really good question. Um, You know, know, like I said a couple of minutes ago, I'm still not where I want to be professionally. In fact, far from it, you know, uh, far from it. But um, anything that I want to do that I haven't been able to. Do. Um, it's a good question. It's a good question. It's, you know, it's funny. It's not one that I think about often. I think it's because I'm perfectly content doing what I'm doing right now, even though it's still you know, a grind. No, I mean, long-term goals, you know, uh, um, you know, I, I always wanted, and I've never been shy about it. I, I like the rich life, you know, I like uh, houses in different cities or different states. I like being able to travel probably my, my personal, the biggest uh, personal thing that I would like in my adult life. And I, I text uh, my CTO. The other day, I was on a commercial flight. I'm in the last row of the commercial flight. And I texted him and I said, uh, jokingly, I said, is it too early to get a NetJets account, <laughs> the, the private uh, jet brokerage? And uh, he replied back and he goes, yeah, you're going to be flying in the sardine can for a little bit longer. <laughs> uh, the day that I can have access to a private plane without having to worry about it, that is going to be a good day. That's when you know you made it. That's it. That's that's a great feeling. I'm I'm assuming that uh, yes, in life it is probably uh, at least for a startup founder, it is uh, finally getting capital for the first time, you know, and then the personal stuff of of getting married and things like this, Uh, and then finally it's yes, it's taking delivery of that plane. Uh, That's it's got to be a great feeling.
1: What do you think most people don't understand about being successful?
0: How long it takes really. I mean, that's it. how long it takes. It's a grind. It is, uh, uh, it never goes the way you think it's going to go. The stories of, um, you know, like the, the very quick hockey stick growth, uh, or, you know, somebody like, um, uh, you know, Zuckerberg, you know, launching Facebook and, um, very quickly, you know, being a billionaire those are obviously the very, very rare exceptions for the most part. It's just a slow, slow grind. Um, and in the beginning, you're not making a lot of money. You're working far more than you did if you ever had a job. Um, so yeah, it just, it, it always takes much longer than you think it's going to take. Last question I got for you
1: is what message do you Matt Whitworth want to announce to the people? You got a big speaker phone, it announces it to the whole world. What message do you want to portray to them?
0: Well, I, it goes back to the app. So we're launching uh, the Update app. I think it's going to be a great news aggregator. Um, I think you know, we're working on a bunch of great original series and original programming. I think news has become uh, uh, you know static and sort of old in its delivery. And uh, we're going to try a, a bunch of different things. And uh, so you can go to theupdate.com. And uh, sign up for the app. And then as soon as it rolls out, um, um, we'll send you an invite. Um, download it and let us know what you think. Matt, I can't thank you enough for how much time you've given
1: me. Um, I really appreciate all the advice um, anytime we've meet, And then obviously here in this interview so we can get your message out to people. So thank you very, very much.
0: Of course, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Always, uh, always enjoy talking to you.
1: Thank you for tuning in and listening to The Taylor Blum Project. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with all your friends, your coworkers, your family. That and the only other thing I ask of you is leave a review on iTunes. Even if you didn't like it, let me know what you didn't like, what I could have done better. If you liked it, let me know that as well. Any information I can get is great. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Blum, T-A-Y-L-O-R-B-L-U-M. Or you can visit my website, taylorblumproject.com. Thanks for listening.